We are in a six-week series looking at what is commonly called the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6. And in doing so, we're being reminded of the absolute necessity of the discipline of prayer in the life of a follower of Jesus. The disciples watched him pray. They heard him pray, and then they asked, Lord, teach us to pray, because they wanted to pray like Jesus. And so he gave them this model that was recorded for all time in his word. And he said, pray like this. And he put six things before them to pray about. And so we are taking the time in this series to look deeper into each one. In the hopes that we would gain a better understanding of what Jesus told them to pray about. And that we too would have a better understanding of the things that we should pray about. And in doing so, we would then be able to come to our Heavenly Father with a greater confidence, and in fact, even with a greater boldness. And so, as a matter of focusing on it, if you would join me as we've done every week in saying the Lord's Prayer as it shows up on the screen out of the ESV, say it with me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. These words I have no doubt you've said hundreds of times in your life. When I reflect on my own life growing up Catholic, we said them every week in a service. Growing up in Oklahoma, we said them before every sporting event. I don't know if that's a common practice here or not. I've said them at weddings. I've said them at funerals. And yet I've said them over and over and over again without ever really considering the words. And I hope you were finding, as I have found, that each phrase is absolutely rich in its content. That's why we're digging in on them. This week we are looking at the fourth phrase, give us this day our daily bread. So whether you're just joining us, this being your first week with us, or you've been here for the last three, we will recap the previous ones because we think they're important and because we think these are things you cannot hear enough. Jesus gave us these words, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. It's a reminder that as we pray to God, that we're reminded of who He is. Which is to say that we're reminded that we pray to a holy, a righteous, and a completely transcendent God who is reigning now on His eternal throne. And by the way, He'll be reigning on Tuesday on His eternal throne He'll be reigning on Wednesday on his eternal throne and every other day for eternity. Let's not miss that. When we pray to him, we have access to his eternal throne and we are called to come to him boldly or with great confidence, according to Hebrews 4, because of the work of his son Jesus. That if you have believed in the name of Jesus unto salvation, You have believed that Jesus' death 
provided for you an access to God because he paid for your sins. If you've believed in Jesus, according to John 1, then you are a child of God and he is your father. And what that sentence unpacks for us, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name, is the reality that we can stand before a holy and righteous God, not in the muck and mire of our sin, but in the glorious, redemptive righteousness of Christ. And that what we, that we received in Christ, that he paid the penalty for our sins. And that my sin in its entirety was imputed unto him. And his righteousness was entirely imputed into me. So when we pray to the Father, we reach a holy God because of his Son. And he is our Father, our Daddy, who loves us, cares for us, and wants to see our needs met. This is to whom we pray. And when we pray, your kingdom come, we're reminded that it's about his kingdom, which is to say, and to be honest with you, that sometimes I'm often challenged by this, because when I come to my life, I want it to be about my kingdom, don't we? I want it to be about Ben's plans, Ben's will, Ben's thoughts, Ben's hopes, Ben's dreams, Ben's aspirations. I don't think I'm the only one here with this problem, but it's about his kingdom, and it's about his kingdom coming into my life and into the lives of other people, when we yield our lives to him, we are used by him to build his kingdom. And when we pray this, we reset our thinking and our priorities to the kingdom. And in doing so, we should be reminded to pray for our families, to pray for our neighbors, our co-workers, those who don't know Christ, and to pray for the world as there are many people in the world with minimal exposure to the gospel, and as we've done every week, if you were a follower of the Joshua Project's Unreached People Group of the day, this morning we would be praying for the Tanti people of India, of which there are nearly 5 million in northern India, with very minimal exposure to the gospel. In fact, they're considered to have been engaged with the gospel, but completely unreached which is to say the gospel exists there, but the people aren't turning to Christ. So we need to pray for the Tanti people that they would hear the gospel, that it would be before them. And as we've done every week, it should remind us of all the people around us that don't know the gospel. Yesterday I was in Sam's. I tend to get there five times a week. Uh, we were checked out by a young woman named Nemo. I asked Miss Nemo where she's from. She says, I'm from Somalia. To which my son, who's seven, picks up, Dad, we were just talking about Somalia. Yeah, because we prayed for Somalians last week. And so we asked Nemo some things about her country, and, and we were able to interact with her. And it was fun that thinking about that and making those connections. We invited her to church, talked to her a little bit about Jesus. We'll see where that goes. But we're called to be kingdom-minded people, that the kingdom would come before us and would be a value in our life. We pray his kingdom come. And we pray his will be done. And when we do that, we acknowledge that God's will for our lives is in fact our obedience. 
that we would follow his words, his actions, and his commands. Both his moral commands and his missional commands. That our lives would reflect his character by leading a pure life. And that our lives would reflect his mission by sharing his words. Jesus puts it this way, John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commands. So we do what Jesus calls us to do. Not from guilt, not from moral obligation, but from a sincere love for a man who stepped in and died on our behalf. So just as Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane when faced with a difficult path, not my will, but your will be done, we too choose to say, I will trust you. And I will obey you. And so we will pray that we would seek a greater obedience in our lives. You might pick up from those first three things to, to pray about, that they're all about him. It's about his name. It's about his kingdom. It's about his will. They exalt him. And when we do that, we're reminded that he is God that he is sovereign, that he is in control, that he is ruling. They assert his preeminence. And conversely, they also position us as well. Because he is God and we are not. In fact, the Bible would put out the opposite before you, that I am needy, that I'm a sinner, and that I will struggle. So again, we lean into the gospel. That the great God of the universe, who is our daddy, who loves us, accepts needy, struggling sinners before him because of his son, and he wants to hear from us and hear our needs. So as we lean into these last three phrases that will speak to our needs, in fact, our greater needs and our dependence upon him fully. Matthew six eleven, the fourth thing for us to pray about says this, give us this day our daily bread. This is our fourth thing. We pray, God, provide for us all the daily provisions that we will need for today. That there is in this prayer request the idea that all of our needs, all of them, what we will put on our bodies, what we will put in our mouths, what we need to survive today comes from the Lord. That what I need, He will give me. That I would lead a life that is fully and completely dependent on Him. Which is to say, for a lot of us who live in the Western world, we're tempted to come to something like this and over-spiritualize this. We'd be quick to say, Jesus is the bread of life. And he is. We'd be tempted to say that in Jesus, we have everything we need for life and godliness. And we do. And we'd be tempted to think that when God supplies every need of ours, according to the riches of his grace, that we'd lean into statements like this. And I don't want to underestimate them. Because all of those statements are true, but we tend to over-spiritualize them. Which is to say this, that we come up with a life where Jesus has taken care of me spiritually and I take care of me physically. Where Jesus gives me salvation 
and I pay all my bills. Where Jesus has done the work to repair my relationship with my father and I am left to tend to the needs of my own children. And when we look at it that way, we miss the point. We miss what Jesus is talking about. That when it says in Philippians 4.19, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus, that by all of our needs, he means all of our needs, which means all of our needs. According to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus, which is to say that those of us who live in the Western world in the 21st century, that this is a challenge for us, correct? That I have bread. And in fact, right now, I have three loaves of bread. I got two of them yesterday at Sam's. I tell you, I go there often. When you go to Sam's, you can only buy loaves of bread in pairs, so we always end up with some odd set. We have three loaves right now. If I ran out of bread... We're safe, because I also bought English muffins. So we're covered. But if I ran out of English muffins, we also have something like seven pounds of flour left over, which we could follow some recipe we find on Pinterest, and come up with something tasty. And if that didn't sound good to us, which, by the way, is an incredibly first-world privilege statement, right? If that didn't sound good to us, we would just go out to eat. And if we didn't have the cash to pay for it, because I hardly carry cash, I could write a check. I often joke that of the 17 checks we wrote last year, 13 of them were to a Chinese restaurant on university because they only take checks. So I now only carry a check in my wallet should my wife call and say, hey, could you pick up Great Wall? Knowing that they only take checks, that's why I have one. But if I was out of a check, I could use my debit card. Or I could use my credit card, or frankly, I could even tap my iPhone on something and have it paid for. Which is to say that we, and very specifically me, struggle to understand this type of dependency on Jesus for my physical needs because it's not the world I live in. I'm not looking for bread, I'm looking for all sorts of other things. I'm so tempted. To believe that I can provide for myself, that I can provide for my wife, that I can provide for my family using any of the aforementioned items that I have purchased and miss the fact that God is the giver of my bread. If we were in poorer parts of the world, And this would also be true for the first century common people like the disciples. We might well understand it this way. That you work all day and you receive a daily wage. Which would be the equivalent of the money for the food for the day. Which is to say that you'd work all day and you'd get just enough to survive. That I might receive the money that I needed to buy the beans or the rice or the flour that would provide for us today. That's the concept of daily bread. And with doing missionary work, I've been to many countries like this, where they don't have six means to pay. They don't have seven choices 
for dinner. I've been to many countries where you eat the same thing for breakfast, for lunch, and for dinner. It's all that they have. These people have a concept of daily bread that I lack. And the point of putting this before us is not to shame us or even to give us a sense of guilt. If we were to go that direction, we would miss the point. It's not my fault, it's not my doing, or any of us, that we were picked to be born in the richest country in the world. None of us chose that, right? We're the product of our parents. We were born where they lived. And in these contexts, give us this day our daily bread is different. It's different for us. In a different context, we would understand the desperate prayer that the Lord doesn't provide for me. I have nothing. And in this context, where I'm so tempted to provide for myself, I miss out on the reality that God's provision for me is ever-present. That, in fact, I'm actually saddled with the distraction of my own provisions. It took me like two hours to come up with that phrase. So I'll repeat it to you again. That I'm saddled with the distractions of my own provisions. Which is to say that I'm hindered by the reality that I can provide for myself. That it actually causes me problems and struggles and distracts me from knowing God as He is. Because I believe I can take care of myself. That I make it harder on me and on us when I think it's me who provides and not the Lord. That I miss this idea that it's the Lord who provides all that we have. And it's the Lord that provides all that we need. That it's the Lord that's given me a house. The Lord that's given me a car. It's the Lord that puts shoes on the feet of my children. It's the Lord who puts food in their tummies. It's the Lord who gives me my daily bread. The provisions I need for the day, this idea, by the way, comes from the Old Testament. It's in the book of Exodus, the second book in your Bible, in the 16th chapter. We're going to lean into that text this morning. So as you turn into Exodus 16, I think it's page 58, I want to give you some background. Because as the book of Exodus begins, it's a fascinating story. The book of Exodus, the second book in the Pentateuch, is the second book in a five-book series. It takes under consideration that you'd be familiar with all five. When you get to Exodus, you should know the story of Genesis, which is that God's people were led to Egypt as Joshua was seeking to feed his family. And as they had lived there a while, God had raised up men and generations in Egypt. And finally, a Pharaoh had come to live who did not know who Joseph was, it says in the text. And he enslaved the Israelites. He put them into bondage. The very picture of slavery that we walk in in sin is pictured in the book of Exodus as 
physical slavery. And the Pharaoh kept increasing the burden of their slavery. So finally, God raises up Moses to set his people free. You may know the story. And God uses the 12 plagues, and finally, Pharaoh agrees to let them go. So the nation of Israel escapes slavery, escapes Pharaoh's army by crossing the Red Sea, and finds themselves in the wilderness, and they start to realize that they're hungry, and our story picks up in Exodus 16, starting in verse 2. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hands of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger." Which is to say, to put before you, that God had brought these people out of slavery, where their bondage was getting worse and worse and worse. That God had delivered them through the plagues. It didn't cost them their children. That he brought them through the Red Sea. And that all that they could come up with at this point was, it had been better for us if we died as slaves. Which brings us to a side note. Why are God's people so quick to grumble? This is a convicting note for me. Why are God's people so quick to grumble? They're missing everything God had done for them, as if to think God had moved this far only to leave them alone, only to forget them. I do this too. I can't just point this out to them. I once heard John Piper say, Jesus is currently doing around 10,000 things for me, and I am aware, of course, of three. Which is to say that God is always at work, always moving, always doing lots of things, and the problem isn't God being at work. The problem is my ability to see what he's doing, my willingness to look up from my hand to appreciate all the ways he's providing for me, all the ways in which he's giving me what I need, and yet I grumble. And we need to see this and appreciate this next part. That the Israelites are throwing a tantrum, not unlike my three-year-old. And in the midst of this tantrum, God speaks to his people, verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. And on the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. God knew their needs. In the middle of their whining and their grumbling when they were aware not of all that God had accomplished on their behalf, but what they thought they were missing, God knew all of their needs. And he was providing for them. And he rains down bread. Do you see God's ability to provide here? God didn't need Sam's. He didn't need Hornbacher's. He made it rain bread. 
And by the way, if we were to lean into this text further, I've left my notes now, so hopefully I don't get off too far. This bread tastes like honey, which is to say that it's delicious. It would have been very appetizing, and he provided quail for them too. I don't know how much quail you've eaten in your life. It ain't half bad either. God doesn't just give them a little. He provides for them in abundance what they needed He took care of them. If we were to follow Matthew 6 on through as Jesus continued to teach, we would come to this text in Matthew 6, 25 and 26. It says this, Therefore I tell you, this is Jesus talking, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on it. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and let your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not not of more value than they? And the answer, of course, is yes. You are far more valuable than the birds. God knows this. He created you. And Jesus' point is, he'll take care of you also. He will meet your needs, Jesus said he would. So let's go back to Exodus 16, 4. When Jesus tells them to go out, he says, go out and gather every day's portion. Each day, God says, I will give you what you need. Depend on me completely, fully today. And tomorrow when you wake up, Don't think about yesterday. Don't consider tomorrow. Depend on me today. And then he adds that I might test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. And what you see here is that his daily provisions are a test as to whether or not we will follow him and trust him. That his daily provisions serve as a test for whether we trust him to provide for us. So will we believe what he says? Or will we get anxious and try to do it ourselves? In verse 6 and in verse 12, the Lord says the same thing. That when I do this, this is the Lord, I, when I provide for your daily needs, verse 6, it says, you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of slavery. Verse 12 says that you shall know that I am your God. In both of those verses, God is testifying to the nation of Israel in Exodus and testifying to you, if you'll pay attention, that when God provides for your needs, he's testifying to you of his ability to bring you out of slavery, which is to say as a New Testament believer, at noon today which will feel more like one, I get it. When you sit down to eat something and you put food in your mouth, God is reminding you of his ability to save you, to pull you out of slavery, to bring you out of sin. He's reminding you of his graciousness by putting bread in your mouth. Now, you might pay for it with cash, a check, a debit or credit card, or your iPhone, But God is reminding you that he has brought you out of slavery in Exodus 16, 12. And that he is your God. How? Because he's providing for you. 
And it's he who's providing for you, not you. We can't mistake that. Exodus 15 picks it back up. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, this is the bread that had rained down. What is this? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to you to eat. This is what the Lord commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered, some more, some less. But when they measured it in with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing, had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. Which is to say, somewhat practically, that I'm a big man and I got big hands. And if I went out and gathered, I wouldn't be hungry at the end of the day. And my wife was a little woman with little hands. And if she went out and gathered, she wouldn't be lacking anything. Why? Because God in his perfect provision was taking care of his people. That whether they gathered too much or too little, it turned out to be exactly what they needed. Verse 19. And Moses said to them, and it's a good warning for us, let no one leave any of it over until the morning. But they, they who like to grumble, they who are like me, did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the next morning, which is to say they didn't trust that he'd provide for them the next day, right? It rained bread, and if that's not miraculous enough, we should look at that and go, well, probably not going to happen again tomorrow. We should keep some, lest God not be able to do what God said he was going to do. And so when they woke up the next morning, the bread that they had kept bred worms and stank. That is a southern term. And Moses was angry with them. You get what you need for the day and not more. Look at verse 35. This literal daily provision of God raining bread for his people. Look at verse 35. The people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Cana, which is to say, for 40 consecutive years, God in his righteous provision made it rain bread every morning, brought quail into their camp every night, so that God's people were fed, and not just a minimal amount, what they needed, and not just in a lackadaisical way. He gave them bread that tasted like honey, and he gave them roasted quail. God took care of his people. And he taught the Israelites his daily provision by providing for them daily so that they would be reminded of who he was and that he had brought them out of slavery and it wasn't them. Which is to say this, who provides for you? And if it's the Lord, what is his daily provision supposed to remind you of? 
Because if it's the Lord who provides you for you, then his daily provisions exist to remind you that he is in control, that he is sovereign, and that he is meeting your needs. And that in his daily provisions, he might remind you that he alone is big enough to remove you from slavery. Which is to put it this way. If you miss God as the provider, then you're going to believe that you are the provider, and you're going to miss out on who God is, and you're going to think you can get yourself out of slavery, which is to say that you're going to believe that you don't need Jesus to die on the cross for your sins, that you could probably just be good enough that you don't really need him. That's kind of what the text is putting before us. That we live in a way that is completely and absolutely dependent on Jesus Christ, spiritually. Which is to say that we have salvation, not of our doing, not of our works. We have salvation because God the Father sent his Son to die on a cross in my place. Couldn't have done it on my own. God brought me out of slavery. And then I have a faithful, loving father. These are the things that I'm to be reminded of by his provision. So as you go forth today, be reminded of that. That if you take on the practice, as believers in Jesus Christ, we should, praying for our meals, the prayer before your meal ought not be, a simplistic, God, thanks for this food. Hail Mary. And even if it is, because I really don't want to condemn that, because if that's what you're saying, just be mindful of the fact that it's God that actually gave you the food. It's God's gracious provision in your life that he's providing for you. God, thank you so much for this food. Just feel it. When Jesus teaches us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. It's so that we would realize that we are literally dependent on Him. That we're spiritually dependent on Him. And that we are physically dependent on Him. And that we would walk out today in the provision of what He has given me. The mercy. The grace. And the bread that I would walk out today in what he has given me. Jesus teaches his disciples. And he says, pray like this. Hallowed be thy name. That we would acknowledge who he is and who, he, and who we are. That we would always be reminded of the gospel. And we say his kingdom come. That we might have a better understanding of our own salvation and that we might be a better participant in bringing the kingdom into our families, neighborhood, workplaces, and the world. And we say, your will be done. And we pray that we would have a life that is lived out in more complete obedience to Jesus. And when we pray, give us this day our daily bread, we acknowledge our complete and utter dependence on him. That we'd be reminded that he is the only one that can provide for us physically. And that he is the only one 
that can provide for us spiritually. Let me pray. We'll be finished. Great God in heaven, I thank you for your word. That this morning as we lean into it, it is a simple text. God, you are the provider of all things. All things. Father, may I, literally me, not be guilty of believing that I can provide for myself. That everything I have is mine. Father, may I and us and we, may we appreciate, Father, that all we have comes from you. And that the daily bread or the daily hamburger or burrito or pizza or whatever it looks like, the daily sandwich, Father, that it all comes to us because of your grace. Father, may we lead lives that are completely dependent on you. And may we not be distracted by our own ability to provide, lest we miss your grace in our lives. Father, we thank you so much for who you are, and we thank you for your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.